Welcome to the North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. I hope you guys are doing good, having a great day. If you have your Bible, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, that's where we've been starting throughout this entire Pillars series. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, it says this, And he, talking about Jesus, and Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. These are the five pillars that we have been discussing over the last several weeks. And he gave these to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Jesus gave these pillars, these gifts, the apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers, and the evangelists for a specific reason to build up and to grow the church. We've been looking at these as the pillars of the church. Everything that the church is, aside from Jesus, who is our foundation, rests on these pillars, is empowered, is equipped through these Pillars And these pillars are crucial if we're going to be a church that operates at full strength because, as we've said every single week, a church at full strength is impossible to stop. A church at full strength is impossible to stop. No matter what the opposition is, a church at full strength is impossible to stop. And so we're looking at these pillars individually. We've looked at the evangelist. We've looked at the pastor. We looked at the teacher. Those are the easy ones, right? And now we are going to start into some that uh, may cause a little bit of us or may cause us to uh, question some things a little bit. So, So this morning we're looking at the prophet. Everybody say prophet. This morning, we are looking at the prophet. Now, I know that this might stretch some of you this morning, but I believe that every single believer has the potential for a prophetic anointing on their life. Every believer has the potential for a prophetic anointing on their life. And, and so I, I've, I've written about four of these messages this week. And, uh, and as I'm trying to pray through and think, God, what do you want me to say? How do you want me to bring this about? Lord, Lord, I mean, what are you trying to teach me through this? I felt like because this prophetic ministry, because the ministry, the role of the prophet runs so deep and so throughout scripture, I felt like the Holy Spirit was saying, Chris, just simplify the message. Just make it simple this morning. And so we're going to do our best to really simplify this message and make two applicable points to us today so that we can see what our role in a prophetic type ministry might look like. So in the book of Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost happened. This was the moment that the church was birthed, the moment that the New Testament church, the, the, the church that we know was birth, the church that we exist in. This was the moment here in Acts chapter 2, and um, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. 120 other believers are up there. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're, they're speaking in tongues. They leave this room that they're in, and then they walk out into Jerusalem, and uh, because of what God did in the room and because of how the, the Spirit of God was just overwhelming the people as they left that room into Jerusalem, like it created a little bit of a, a scene, a motion like it was they were being noticed these people weren't just coming out of the room and like nothing has happened everybody knew that something 
different, something big had happened. And so uh, Peter comes out and he begins to preach the very first message in the New Testament church. And he has an opening statement, which we will look at in a few minutes, but he starts out by quoting the prophet Joel, the Old Testament prophet Joel, the book of Joel. It's, it's, we're going to look at this. Acts chapter 2, verse 17 or it's Joel chapter 2, verses 28. And this is what Peter says in the very first message in the New Testament church. He says this. He says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Everybody say, all flesh. That's important because we need to know who this is for. We need to know who this is talking about. And sometimes we read scripture just to get our Project 365 checkmark. Sometimes we read it because we think it's going to help us. But sometimes we have to read it and ask ourselves, do I actually believe what I'm reading? Do I actually believe that this is true? And so when we read passages like Acts chapter 2, verse 17, that says, and in the last days it shall be that God declares, or it shall be God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, we have to ask ourselves this question, do I actually believe this? Do I want this? Is this something that draws my spirit? Is there somewhere inside of you deep, is there, is there that place in your heart that aches for God to pour his spirit out on all flesh? Is there something inside of you, is there that divine ache, that divine discontent that's saying, God, I want more. God, there has to be more, more of you, more of your presence, more of your spirit. You promised that in the last days you would pour your spirit out on all flesh. God, I am all flesh. Amen? God, I want what you are promising, and I want it now. Lord Jesus, pour your spirit out. It says, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Verse 18, even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. The prophet Joel, the apostle Peter, they, they are saying that there will be a day, there's coming a day, and, and it began on the day of Pentecost, and it's still carrying on today that the presence of God will so powerfully and, and the anointing will be so thick in the spirit of God that real people, listen to this, real people, not professional prophets, not paid pastors, not traveling evangelists, but, but people who have jobs in the workforce or who are stay-at-home moms or, or people, irregardless of title, status, or gender, will begin to prophesy about the glories of God. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. This is the pillar that we're going to talk about this morning, the pillar of the prophet. But the, the prophet can be a little bit difficult to wrap our minds around. And, and let's just try to, to address this one issue that I think causes a lot of us to, to question sort of this ministry. Let, let's say that uh, you and I don't know each other and we're at Dairy Queen. We're standing in line getting ready to get our dilly bar or whatever it is. And um, you and I are just standing there. We're talking and we exchange pleasantries, introductions and small talk. And you ask me, so Chris, what do you do? And I say, oh, I'm a pastor. 
What's the typical response going to be? The typical response is going to be, oh yeah, what church? Oh, North Shore, it's over there by Walmart. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I know that, yeah, the, the, one, the big building, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that's a very normal conversation, right? You could understand that. If you asked me, Chris, what do you do? What's your profession? I said, you know, I'm a teacher. You, your, your response would probably be something like, oh yeah, what do you teach? Where do you teach? We have that conversation. If I said, I'm an evangelist, your response may be, oh yeah, is that a denominational thing? Like, do you travel? Do you set your own dates? Do they tell you where to go? And, and we have that conversation. But what if, standing there in line, you said, hey, Chris, what do you do? And I said, I'm a prophet. What would your response be then, right? Okay, I'm just gonna, it's my turn here. Good for you, right? Your weirdo detector starts flashing like crazy, right? A prophet, huh? You know, you're looking at your spouse. Do you see the kids? I don't know where the kids are. We got this prophet here who's in line for ice cream before he goes and meets the aliens on Haley's Comet. I need to know where the kids are. But we have this idea, especially in this modern age, that, that when we think of prophets, we think of like cults, we think of Kool-Aid, and we think of strange, weird people, right? Counting down the end of days, right? You're getting it wrong, but that's all right. We'll get it right next time. But just because the title makes us nervous doesn't mean that Jesus has removed this pillar from the church. Jesus gave these gifts to equip the saints and build up the body of Christ. And I believe that Jesus' plan and his intention for the church and for us as individuals is that it would and will continue to operate in the prophetic anointing. So for the sake of our message here this morning, just to make it go down a little bit easier, we won't talk about the prophet, but let's talk about a prophetic anointing, right? Because sometimes when we say the word prophet, especially about today, we put up these barriers and we put up these shields like, no, this is weird. Let's just talk about a prophetic anointing because I believe that we as believers, every single one of us, all flesh, sons and daughters, right, servants and leaders, all have access to, and it's God's desire that we all operate in a prophetic anointing. So let's talk about this. Two things that I want to say. The first is this. A prophetic anointing points to Jesus. A prophetic anointing will always point to Jesus. We've been talking a lot these last several weeks about the gifts that Jesus gives, but we have to not neglect the giver of the gifts, right? Got to make sure we don't neglect the giver of the gifts. I want you to consider really quick John the Baptist, who essentially is the last Old Testament prophet. If you're in any of our North Shore University 201, 301 classes, you've probably heard me talk about this and John the Baptist in this way. But John... John the Baptist is our last Old Testament prophet. He's the last one that comes on the scene uh, before Jesus and before the New Testament, before the kingdom is at hand. In fact, John the Baptist is going around. And let's, let's be honest, if you know anything about John the Baptist, you've studied, you've read anything about John the Baptist, he's a little weird, right? Right? I mean, he lived out in the woods. He wore strange things. He ate bugs. Like John the Baptist was a little bit weird. And then he comes in and he starts preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. And amazing things start to happen. John is the forerunner of Jesus, the last Old Testament prophet. And then the Messiah comes on. So it's John the Baptist. John is Jesus' cousin, actually. And then they come together kind of at the same thing, at the same time. John chapter 3, verse 26 says this. And they, they are um, John's disciples. 
We know Jesus had his disciples, but John um, had his followers. John had his disciples as well. And so in verse uh, 26 of John chapter 3, it says, And John's disciples came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. There was a season when John came in as the forerunner of Christ. There was a season that John was the hottest ticket in town, right? If you're talking about churches, John was the fastest growing church. John was cutting edge. Everything was going well for John. People came from all over to listen to John preach. People came from all over to be baptized in water by John. His following grew and grew and grew. People were being changed, and, and they weren't just like saying the words, like, yeah, I want to be different. They were actually changing. They were repenting. They were living differently. They were returning to God, not just in word, but in action, in lifestyle, in deed. Most of the Old Testament prophets, when they spoke, the majority of the people rejected. There were times when they would repent, but, but most of the time people would reject and, and, and have nothing to do, and then God would have to get their attention in another way, but John's message was being received by the people and it was leading to real genuine life change. John was forcefully advancing the kingdom in a mighty and powerful way. And just as John, with his disciples and with his followers and with the crowd around him and with the Jordan baptizing, just as John was reaching the pinnacle of his ministry success, just, just as it was as good and as awesome as it ever had been, then comes along a guy named Jesus. This is what the, John's disciples must have thought. John, the baptism thing, that was your thing. But now this Jesus guy, he's coming along and he's baptizing people too. Like, we started that, right? That was our deal. And now Jesus is baptizing people. Come on, Jesus, get your own thing. Get, grab your own. You're stealing our people, Jesus. This was supposed to be our gathering. This was supposed to be our group. This was supposed to be our church. And Jesus comes along. He starts doing everything that John's doing, and he's stealing our people. And they're, they're mad about this. Think, think if um, the, the Dunkin' Donuts, you know, Free the Donut comes and... Um, People are enjoying their donuts for a year. And then somebody has the nerve to set up a Krispy Kreme right across the street, right? Like, find your own place. This is my place. This is my town. I've staked my claim here. You got to back off and go somewhere else. You can almost hear uh, John's disciples going up to him and John, uh, going up to John and said, hey, you know what, John? You'll never believe this. <laughs> Check that. Get this. I was walking by the Jordan the other day, the Jordan water, river, lake, whatever it is, sea, what do you call it? I don't know, the water, Jordan. And guess who was there in the water? You'll never, Jesus, of course, it was Jesus. And guess what he was doing? Baptizing, like it was his idea. Right? And remember Cliff, who we baptized two weeks ago? Cliff was over there being baptized by Jesus again, like the first baptism wasn't good enough. Jesus. Are you kidding? And they're saying, John, Jesus' crowd is getting bigger and yours is getting smaller. All are going to him. 
We need to do something about this. We need to rebrand. We need to reevaluate. We need to, we need to figure out a, a, new, a new thing, a new strategy. We need to do better because we got to go get those people back. Verse 27, and John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I'm not the Christ. And, and man, that is, that is so good to know that John began his ministry by letting people know, I'm not the one you're looking for. Don't, don't, don't look to me. Don't, don't, don't come to me for your salvation. John says to his disciples, I, I've already told you, I'm not the Christ. I have a very specific job. I have a very specific mission. I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. John is saying, I'm not the groom. I'm not the one searching for my bride. I'm not the one calling the bride to himself. That's not me. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the friend that stands up there and looks really weird in my, my wool skin outfit eating bugs next to him. It's not about me. It's about the Messiah. I get to celebrate. I get to dance. I get to shout. I get to rejoice because the bride is being called to the bridegroom. And I want you to know, disciples, I'm not the bridegroom. He says, it's not me. I'm just a groomsman. By the way, how many of you, thinking back on your wedding day, how many of you remember all of your groomsmen that were standing there with you that day? Some of you do. Some of you are like, ah, you know, it's been a few years. I, maybe if I thought about it. But, but you can't always really quickly remember all the groomsmen. Why? Because it wasn't about them. How many of you remember the bride? You remember the bride? It's kind of important. But you don't always remember the groomsmen because they're not the center of attention. It's not about them. Let's be honest. In our culture today, it's not really about the groom either, right? It's... Everything's the bride. But uh, John says, I'm just a groomsman, man. I'm not, the, I'm not the bridegroom. Second part of verse 29, he says this, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. The disciples come up to John and say, John, our crowd is shrinking. Everybody's going to Jesus. And John says, look, I told you already, I'm not the Christ. People are going to him. <laughs> Mission complete. Right? My joy is now complete. Verse 30, he says these words. This is extremely important. He must increase, but I must decrease. And this is the attitude of the last Old Testament prophet, and this is the attitude that must be present if a prophetic anointing is going to exist in our church today. He must increase, I must decrease. Everything has to be directed to Jesus. Jesus has to be the center of it all, and it has to be more than just a song. I think some of you who have studied Scripture, you know this, but others of you might be surprised about how much Old Testament prophecy actually points to Jesus. I personally think that all prophecy points to Jesus in one way or another, but there are many prophecies that are very specific and very obvious in pointing out some really clear things that Jesus did or was going to do and eventually uh, fulfilled. I, I'll give you some of these. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. I'm just going to make reference to them. They're not going to be on the screen for you. Um, but it says Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 7, it says that Jesus would be born of a virgin. 
In Genesis, it said that the Messiah would be the descendant of Abraham and Isaac. In Numbers, it said that he would be the descendant of Jacob. Isaiah tells us that Jesus, or the Messiah, they didn't know it was Jesus at the time, but the Messiah, the Christ, the one that we're looking for. In um, Isaiah, it says that he would be a descendant of David. And so you have a very specific family tree that is is presented that the Messiah would come from. and, And Jesus obviously fulfilled all of these. In Hosea, it says that he would spend a season in Egypt. In Isaiah, it tells us that a messenger would come before him and prepare the way. This was talking about John the Baptist. In Isaiah, it tells us that he would be from Nazareth. Another part of Isaiah says that he would minister in Galilee. In Psalms, it says it was prophesied that he would speak, that the Messiah, when he comes, he will speak and he will preach using parables and stories. All of these very specific in regard to Jesus, his life, and his ministry. Psalm 8 tells us that he would be praised and and, and adored by little children. Get this, in Zechariah, it tells us that the money that would be paid to betray the Messiah that would be used, the money that was paid to betray the Messiah would be used to buy a potter's field. Think about how specific of a prophecy that is. Not only are they saying that he would be betrayed, but they are telling you, the prophets of old are telling us exactly what they would spend the money on that they received from betraying Jesus, what, what Judas would, would spend the money on. And that's exactly uh, what happened. Well, Judas didn't spend it. He gave it back to them. And they said, well, we can't add this to the church treasury. We got to do something with it. And they went and bought a potter's field. It's all pointing to Jesus. Isaiah tells us that the Messiah was going to be spit on, and he was. Psalm tells us that he was going to be, his hands and feet were going to be pierced. The, uh, Isaiah or, or Psalm is pointing to his death by crucifixion, and that was several hundred years before crucifixion was even invented. Psalm tells us that the soldiers were going to gamble for his clothes when he was crucified. You know that Jesus had that garment and, and the soldiers were looking for keepsakes, mementos, things to remember the day by. They ripped his clothing off and they were going to split it, cut it in, in half or thirds or whatever it was so that everybody could get a piece. And they thought, you know what, this is probably going to be more valuable or whatever if, it, if it's all together. So let's just, let's just gamble for it. Let's cast dice and let's throw dice and the winner gets it. And, and scripture back in the Old Testament prophesied this. Zechariah tells us that he was going to be pierced, he was going to be stabbed in his side, he was. Most importantly, in Psalms, it tells us that Jesus was going to raise victoriously from the dead, so that death will not hold him. And I wonder why the disciples and everybody else was so surprised that that Jesus died, because over and over again, Jesus said, look, I'm going to die and raise again, I'm going to die and raise again. Old Testament tells us that death had no power over him. It's all Old Testament prophecy, and it's all pointing to Jesus. A prophetic anointing will always point to Jesus. And so some questions that we have to ask in our lives. As we're doing our best to follow God, as we're doing our best to be near Christ, as we're doing our best to to fulfill our part in maintaining and establishing and living out these pillars, the question is, are, are you pointing to Jesus Are the words you use pointing to Jesus? Is the way you treat people pointing to Jesus? Your attitude, is that pointing to Jesus? Your actions, is that pointing to Jesus? The way you treat your kids, is that pointing other people to Jesus? 
Most importantly, the way you treat your kids, is that pointing them to Jesus? The way you treat your spouse, is that pointing people to Jesus? The way you treat your spouse, is that pointing him or her to Jesus? Are you pointing people to Jesus? John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. We have to point people to Jesus. We have to do it subtly through our thoughts and actions, through the way we talk. We have to do it boldly with our words, boldly declaring who Jesus is and who he is to us. Point people to Jesus. He must increase. I must decrease. No tricks, no games, no agenda. Because oftentimes we approach verses like this. We say, yeah, yeah he must increase, I must decrease. But we, we think sort of in that secret place in our mind that if I increase Jesus, that he'll be obligated to increase me. If I lift, if Jesus is sort of here and I increase him to here, then, then he's going to have to, I mean, because that's, that's what you do. I mean, you, you send a thank you note when you get a gift. You know, I mean, that's an obligation. Um, if I lift Jesus to here, then he has to elevate me to here. Like, I don't want Jesus to elevate me above him. No, I don't want to steal his glory or anything. But, but if I give him more glory, I want him to give me more glory. Jesus must increase so that I can increase. And that's the thought. That's the attitude that, that we approach this with. But John was so good to say, no, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. And consider John. After he says this, this is exactly what happens in his life. From this point forward, John's ministry continued to decrease. His influence decreased. His crowd decreased. His opportunity decreased. And while Jesus was being surrounded by thousands of people, and as the crowds around Jesus were getting bigger and bigger and bigger, John's crowd was getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Eventually, he found himself in jail where he was ultimately executed because he made the wrong people mad. He must increase. Yes, praise the Lord, I must decrease. Well, hang on a second. Why not instead he must increase and I increase too so that I can have more influence, so that I can do more for him, right? But John, the last Old Testament prophet, I, I believe, paved the way for the attitude that we must have if we're going to operate with a prophetic anointing. He must increase. I must decrease. A prophetic anointing will always point to Jesus and always away from us. It, 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 it points away from us completely. It's always towards Jesus, towards his reign, his restoration, his birth, his life, his supremacy, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. It points to his lordship. It points to the lordship of Jesus, and, and, and prophetic anointing will point to the return of Jesus. Isn't there a part of you that is just dying? Jesus, come back. Jesus, come quickly. Jesus, we're ready. It'll always point to Jesus. Everything else is secondary. Number two, a prophetic anointing is Holy Spirit empowered. A prophetic anointing is Holy Spirit empowered. We started out this message reading from the book of Acts. Peter's quoting the prophet Joel when he says, In the last days, God says that I will pour out my spirit on all people, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. That's, that's how he started his message there. But he had an opening statement, and we're going to look at that opening statement. And I want, you to, I want you to understand this. These are the very first words spoken, spoken in the very first sermon of the New Testament church. Okay, here it is. 
The very first words spoken in the very first sermon in the New Testament church were this. In verse 15, Peter says this. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. The very first words in the very first sermon in the New Testament church, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Is that weird to anybody else? Like something so big, something so awesome, something that they've never seen before happens. These people leave the, their, their room, their church building, so to speak, out there, and they have such boldness, such fire for God that people are looking at them thinking, are they drunk? Opening statement. To all of our guests and all of our visitors, just so you know, we're not drunk, Right? Something was happening. Something was going on. The day of Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit empowers the believers. The church is birthed in a mighty, powerful way. People are speaking in tongues. They're seeing things that they've never saw before. And Peter stands up, hey, just in case you were wondering, we're not drunk. But Joel said in the last days, God says, that he will pour his spirit out on all flesh and your sons and daughters will begin to prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. This, what he talked about, is happening. You may think it looks strange. You may think it looks weird, but it is a fulfillment of the prophecy that God has for the church and it's happening right before your eyes. He preaches this message. 3,000 people get saved and the church just explodes. But it started a little bit strange. Sometimes a prophetic anointing can look strange. Sometimes it can look odd. Sometimes it doesn't make sense. Sometimes our logic gets in the way of it. But we can't reject it just because we don't fully understand it. Imagine throughout Scripture if people would have rejected the things of God that they didn't fully understand. Worship team, please come. Imagine if they would have rejected those things of God that they didn't fully understand. Imagine if they would have rejected those things of God that God had never done before. Like there's no biblical precedent for it, so it happens. I, it must not be God. I can't find it anywhere. Like imagine if Moses was walking on that backside of the desert and he sees a burning bush there, and it's a bush that's on fire, but that it's not burning. And he, he knows that, that this doesn't happen. He knows you cannot explain how this is happening. Then the bush starts talking to him. And he knows two things. He knows that if a bush is on fire, it has to burn, but it's not. So, so this isn't possible. And trees don't talk. And so because it's unexplainable, because it's something he's never seen before, he rejects it. Must not be God because it's odd. It's strange. It's weird. Think about Joshua the night before he fought the battle of Jericho when the angel of the Lord, many people believe it was Jesus, shows up and starts talking to Joshua and says, Joshua, to fight Jericho, I want you to fight them like this. On the first day, I want you to take you and your army and march around the, the city without saying a word. Do that for six days in a row. And on the seventh day, you march around that city seven times without saying a word. At the end of it, you scream as loud as you can and you blow the trumpet as loud as you can. And the whole, you know, the city will come crumbling down. The walls will come down. You can go in and uh, take care of business after that. Right? There, there was no other battle like that. There, there was no biblical precedent to march around a city like that. It was just something that God told them to do. He must not have been able to understand it. It must have seemed weird. It must have seemed odd, right? Imagine, six days, you're marching around that city. 
What are we doing? I hope this works, right? Do you feel stupid? Why are we marching? I don't know. There were some strange things. Most of us are okay that there are aspects of God that are a mystery. We just don't want them to be a mystery to us, right? God, I want you to move in unexplainable ways, but explain it to me first because sometimes you make me uncomfortable and I don't want to be uncomfortable. You know, Titus, he was battling some sickness a, a little over a week ago. It was, it was long, some strep throat. He was there. And when he gets sick, man, he plants himself on this couch. He doesn't move. And everybody in that room, everybody in the family exists to make him comfortable. Dad! I'm outside. I hear him. Dad! Naomi, go get dad. Go get him. Go get dad. What? What? My movie's over. Will you start a new one? <laughs> My sole purpose in life is to make you comfortable. And, and that's, what we, that's what we think God is. God, do something cool, but don't make me uncomfortable. God, do something awesome, but I don't want to be uncomfortable. Make sure you get me my blankie and my milk, and I'm just going to sit here and watch. I, I think that we forget that God asked some of the Old Testament prophets to do some odd things, too. He asked Jeremiah to preach barefoot and naked for three years. That's weird. I don't know if he was, like, naked, naked, or, like, just underwear naked, but, but he was naked preaching. How many of you are going to go to that church? Right? I don't know, there's something with that church that you just, God told him to preach naked. So he's doing, and you know, I mean, there's no biblical precedence for that. Why would God do that? It's weird. Sometimes God does things that we don't fully understand, right? God told Ezekiel to build a model of a city and lay down on his right side next to it for 390 days. And all the food he ate, he had to cook over cow manure in a prophetic word to the people. Imagine how many times he's laying there like, Ezekiel, dude, what are you doing? God told me to do this. No, he didn't. This is not of God. It's weird. Stop it. God told Hosea to marry a prostitute and have a child with the prostitute and name the child unloved. I don't know, but I, I can imagine some well-intentioned um, children of God were going up to Hosea. God did not tell you to do this. This is not of God. It doesn't make sense. It's weird. I've never seen this before, so it must not be of God. Sometimes this Holy Spirit prophetic anointing doesn't always make sense, but it doesn't mean that we ought to reject it either. And this is the tension that believers and pastors especially live in. What happens if God shows up and something weird happens? I can be honest with you as the pastor, that concerns me. What if, like, what if something strange happens, God? What if you come and it's real, but it's, it's weird and people think it's weird? 
are you okay with that? Am I okay with that? Are you okay with that? I mean, you may be okay with it because you're looking at me and saying, you're going to have to deal with it. I'm okay with it because I'm just saying, but, but you have to, like, are we okay with that? Like, what if God does show up? And what if God does do something that is new that we've never seen before? And what if initially, before we begin to vet it out, it initially looks strange and looks weird? Are we going to reject it? I think this is one of the reasons why this pillar, the pillar of the prophetic anointing in the church is, is so lacking today because we, pastors included, um, are afraid. What if God does something? Many of you know that our church, North Shore, is affiliated with the Assemblies of God denomination. We believe that the, uh, the power, the gifts, the anointing of the Holy Spirit that was evident in the early church is evident and real and accessible for us today. We believe in healing, faith, miracles, prophecy, words of knowledge, speaking in tongues, interpretation, all of that stuff. And we believe that those gifts have not stopped. We don't feel like Jesus, we don't believe that God has, has removed those gifts from the church. Like they are still here evident today. And so sometimes in our services, these gifts will be evident. Maybe a word of prophecy, maybe a message of tongues and interpretation. As a guest or a new believer, it can be difficult to understand you can come across as strange and weird, but just because it's strange and you've never seen it before doesn't mean that we should reject it. Um, and as, as the pastor of this church, I've been the pastor, the senior pastor here for the last five years, I can tell you that this is an area of pastoring that I've really struggled with. Like, how do we do this? Do we explain it? Do we mic it? Do we run it through the pastors? Or do we just let it go? I mean, I, I don't know. And, and, you know, I've not made all the right decisions on this. And a lot of what I've said or done has, has frustrated uh, some of the people who've been in the church for a long time. And, and I can freely admit that. I'm, I'm okay to, to realize and see where some of my mistakes have been. But what I've come to realize is this, that if it's God, it's good, and everybody knows it. Even if it's odd or strange. If it's God, it's good, and everybody knows it. If it's not of God and it's weird, everybody knows that too. And then we'll address it after the service with those people individually. Let me give you two stories. Um, I'm running out of time here. Two stories, two, two, two examples of how this played out in our church specifically, in this church several years ago. Sitting back there by the doors, there was um, just greeting people as they were coming in. And this particular Sunday, there was five college-age boys that walked in. I'd never seen them before. I didn't know who they were. They walked in. And I had this thought, and you can, you can be mad at me if you want, but I had this thought that, that was, boy, I hope there's no message of tongues and interpretation today because it'll freak these kids out and they'll never be back. You can talk bad about me over lunch if you want to, but um, the service started, the worship was awesome, there was a message of tongues. I was like, man, you gotta be kidding me. But there was something different about it. Like it was God, it was good, it was awesome, and everybody knew it. So I got up there after the message of tongues and interpretation. I don't even remember what said and what was said. And I, and I said to the church, I said, look, if you felt like this was for you, if you felt like God was speaking to you in this, if, if, if that connected with your spirit, I want you to just come down, come forward and sit around these altars and, and we're gonna pray. And, and man, it just, a large portion of the church came down. They were praying, the worship was going on. And I looked down right here and there were three of the five college-age boys that I'd never seen before. Their hands were lifted in worship, and they were bawling. They were just crying like big babies. I don't know what God was doing, but God was doing something. 
It was God. It was good. And everybody knew it. We had time a couple years after that. There was a guy. I was up here on Saturday night and uh, Saturday afternoon, and there was a guy that came in. He was talking to me. He's been in ministry many, many years. I didn't know who he was. He was talking to me. He was telling me that he was traveling and speaking, and you know, he was kind of fishing because he wanted to speak at our church, and I didn't know him. Um, but he was also kind of offering that, hey, I'm available to speak tomorrow if you want me to. You know, if you feel led, you know, just you, you feel led. You know, you let me speak. I'll do it. I'm, I'm ready. And I didn't know who he was. I wasn't going to just let some guy that I didn't know get up and preach. And so the next day, um, we're standing here in worship, and there was a, a kind of a pause in worship. And he began to speak out in a, a prophetic word, a, a, a word of prophecy in, in the church. And, and he spoke out, and it went on and on and on and on and people started looking at me people started looking at him like it was weird people were like hey do you want me to go like shut him up you know you know give, give me the sign man i'll take care of him um but but it just went on and on and on and on and on and on and we just moved on after it was done i mean we just we just moved on pastor mel went and talked to him after the service he said hey you know what i, I feel like that message was out of line it was inappropriate and oh man this man had never been so insulted in his life it was, contrary, it was contradictory to the spirit in which John ministered. He must increase. I must decrease. That, that whole thing, it was obvious, was very much a, a, a if I increase Jesus, it's going to elevate me. Sometimes people are so desperate to be viewed as having a prophetic anointing that they substitute zeal and agenda for Holy Spirit power, and it never works. It never works. It damages the church and it exposes unbelief and lack of fruit. It never works. If we are going to have revival in the home, we need to operate with a prophetic anointing in our lives. If we are going to have Holy Spirit renewal in our church, then we have to operate with the prophetic anointing in our lives. Stand your feet all across this place. God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. I want that. And I know we're coming up to noon, but just give me two more minutes. I want the Spirit of God to be poured out on me and on this church. I want that. And man, my prayer is that you would want that too. And if in the process there are things that happen in my home, in our church, in our businesses, and in our town that we can't explain, that are a little bit odd, but it elevates God and it advances the kingdom, then so be it. I don't want zeal. I don't want agenda. I want the Spirit to be poured out on all people in this church. I want the Spirit of God to be poured out in the gym where the North Shore kids are. I want the Spirit of God to be poured out upstairs where the, the, the preschoolers are. Scripture says your sons and your daughters will prophesy. It doesn't say your grown sons and daughters. I'm claiming that promise for my sons and my daughters. Let them prophesy. Let them be filled up with the Spirit of God. Man, how weird would it be if you go to pick up your tiny traveler and they're laying there just bawling and crying out to God. You're like, what did you feed them? This is weird, right? Why not? Can't God do that? Man, don't we want that? Don't we want that? 
I'm not interested in the weird, I'm really not. I'm not comfortable with the weird. I can honestly admit that as a pastor, that stuff makes me nervous, but man, if, if God is in it, I want every bit of it. God is in it, I want every bit of it. Bow your heads, close your eyes all across this place. I don't know where you are in your relationship or your level with God. Some of you may be unbelievers and you need to make a decision to commit your heart to Jesus today. You can come to these altars at any point. We have altar workers that will pray with you. If that's you and your life hasn't been about Jesus, but you wanna make it about Jesus, I want you to come. One of our altar workers will find you. They'll pray with you. They'll talk you through what that looks like. But I wanna ask, when we talk about this, when we talk about God pouring his spirit out on us, that, that it, it manifests itself in, in a way that we have never seen before. Do you want that? Are you hungry for that? Does your, does your soul cry out to God and say, God, I'm all flesh. I'm a son and daughter. I want it. I want your spirit. I want your anointing. I want your power. I want your grace. Lord Jesus, I want to experience it in a way that I've not experienced it before. If that's you, would you just raise both hands in worship and begin to ask God to just pour his spirit out on you. Pour your spirit out on us, Lord. Pour your spirit out on us, your church. Pour your spirit out on us, your people. Pour your spirit out on us, your sons and daughters. Pour your spirit out, Lord Jesus. And whatever you ask us to do, we'll do. Wherever you ask us to go, we'll go. Whatever you want us to be, Lord Jesus, we will be. Pour your spirit out, Lord Jesus. Pour yours. If you fill us up individually, Lord, so we can take it back to our homes, so we can take it back to our neighborhoods, pour your spirit out on us, Lord Jesus. Pour your spirit out on us, Lord. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we praise you. Jesus, we exalt you. Jesus, you are our all in all. You are the center of everything, Lord Jesus. We love you, and we want more of your spirit. We want more of your anointing. We want more of your power. We want more vision. We want more dreams. Lord Jesus, we want to see you more. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we thank you. Jesus, we praise you. All across this place, can we just begin to thank him? Let's just thank him for who he is. Thank him in advance for the promises that we are going to see carried out in a specific way in our lives and in our church. Can we thank him? Jesus, we praise you. Jesus, we worship you. Jesus, we adore you. Holy Spirit. 